0: I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Many years ago, I was made aware of an incident of domestic violence in my family. I wasn't around for the incident, but when I heard of it, I immediately called a friend who worked closely with social workers. This friend told me I could call the police. But odds were high the police would show up, take one look at a rich white family, not see any marks in the victim's body, and turn and look the other way. They had real cases to deal with. Fear also that my reporting the incident would lead to an exacerbation of abuse, though every instinct was screaming otherwise, I did nothing. I remember this powerlessness as I sobbed inside my car, gripping the steering wheel, knowing I had no good options, and once again, someone I deeply cared about was being harmed, and there was nothing I could do about it. I don't want anyone in the church to ever feel this way. You have options when you see injustice, even if there is no possibility of an ideal outcome or an ending that is happy for everyone. I want you to know that you can fight until you're forced out, choose to leave, or until change occurs. You are not stuck when faced with situations of abuse. This episode's guest is Mike Sloan from Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environment. This podcast supports TearsofEden.org, a community and resource for those in the aftermath of spiritual abuse. If you're finding this podcast helpful, I encourage you to like, subscribe, or leave a review on your favorite podcasting listening apparatus. This is part two of Abuse in Churches. Thanks for joining us today. Would you be willing to go through some case studies for a church just from a narrative perspective?
1: Absolutely. Here's the thing. We can say some broad things. Do you need to take a perspective always of looking at each situation on on its own Mm -hmm. and take it on a case by case basis? There can be nuance. And so without more specifics, I think it's worthwhile because it can give us some broad help and, and broad ways of just good ideas in general of how we should be taking a posture and responding to certain situations. I would say even before we talk about anything specific, you can't have real any kind of prevention. Or appropriate response without that broader, it's really hard without that broader education in the whole community and without those very clear boundaries and a culture of accountability. But once you have that in place, then you have some things there where you can respond well. But I'm glad to, to talk through specifics.
0: I'm thinking from a narrative perspective of These are the kind of things that could potentially happen, and with this idea of, oh, it's not going to happen here. I, I was, I remember being told that myth as a youth director that sometimes people come into churches and they train their children to lie, and it's all for a lawsuit so that they can get money. Like I was told that as like a youth leader, and so that, yeah, that mindset of. It's not going to happen here. And then it does. And there's just this freak out moment.
1: (laughs) And, And that's when the church decides, okay, before we, let's say it's a case with someone in the youth group. Okay, before we report this or do anything else, let's lay out the case and do our own evaluation. That's the worst thing you can possibly do, because not only are you not qualified to do that not only are you biased in in the situation, it just, it plays right into the hands of abusers because how grooming works in a church community, read the experts, this is what they say. Uh, Victims are not the only ones groomed. The church community is groomed. The caregivers of the children are also groomed. So that would be other volunteers. So if someone as a volunteer in the youth group they are not only going to groom the victim or victims, they're going to groom other volunteers, the youth pastor, other staff, and the whole community to view them in a certain way. So then when a concern comes to light, what is the pers- if a church decides very foolishly that we're going to be the ones to sort through this and decide what needs to happen, What they often are then, even if they don't even recognize, and sometimes they don't even recognize this is what they're doing, they're bringing the perspective of the abuser to the situation and evaluating it from how the abuser has groomed them to think. Whoa. So it's just a disaster. It's a complete disaster. That's why you need to report any kind of child abuse immediately, even if you're not a mandated reporter, by the way. There are some states, many states now, where every adult is a mandated reporter. When we train in churches, I say, I don't care if you're a mandated reporter. If you're a Christian, you have a responsibility, a moral responsibility, first and foremost, for which you will answer to Jesus to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. You have to report that outside the system and let someone who has training, someone who is not a part of that system that's been groomed, to bring their more professional experience and skills to investigate. There should be no debate in churches about whether we should report this disclosure or not. Of course, there are situations where it's unclear what's happening and there's not been a disclosure, and that's a whole other issue. But, yeah, it's something we see a lot, sadly, and have seen a lot over the years.
0: In the case of a situation where maybe... Someone, a volunteer has a suspicion about someone and they bring it to church leadership and there has not been a disclosure and there is no evidence. At what point, what would you advise in that situation?
1: So in our training, we go through different scenarios with churches and try to make it concrete. So there are situations where you have clear evidence or some kind of evidence that should be reported or Occasionally, it's not the most common situation. You witness it. I've had people in ministries tell me, "Yeah, I saw it. they the parent just hauled off and, and hit them on the head." You should report that immediately. If you find images of child abuse, child pornography, uh, that should be reported. If you find texts that are sexualized or intimate, even emotionally between an adult and a child, that should be reported. That's evidence uh, potentially. So you should report in those situations. You should report any kind of disclosure. And then the hardest category is a lot of laws are written to say something like if there's a reasonable suspicion. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about is not just a whim. (laughs) It's not only a feeling, but it's based in some kind of reality. So that might be a child acting out in certain ways, demonstrating a knowledge of sexuality that's not normal for their development. It might be other behavioral indicators Falling grades in conjunction with other things that are going on. It's hard to know in some of those cases, but I mentioned Victor Veith on our board. In child abuse cases, he would say something like Look, if you write down two or three or four concerns, by the time you get to your third or fourth one, it's good to go ahead and make a report. Because, and if you look, if you report that information, here's what's not happening. You're not saying, To the authorities, I've caught an abuser, go arrest that person. You're simply giving information to someone who has training to know what to do with it and respond appropriately. Now, does the system always work? Of course not. But the best shot is to report that to someone who has training. And if you're not sure, talk to someone. Don't ignore. If you're having that internal debate, don't ignore that. That's often a good sign that you need to follow up and do something about it. Call your local child advocacy center, call someone who has training on this and ask, what about this? I'm not sure in this situation what's going on. The right path is never to ignore those gut feelings you have or ignore any kind of signs. So that's where good training comes in. You have to have good training on those common signs of abuse and indicators of abuse that are those potential signs we want to narrow in and, and hone in on. Without that training, you're going to miss things. And of course, you're never going to catch everything but to pay attention. And that's where clear boundaries in a church setting is so vital. When you have clear boundaries on what's appropriate in terms of touch and language and other boundaries with kids, you can see within those boundaries who shows respect to kids, who is respectful of those boundaries. Abusers test those boundaries. With clarity there, you can observe who is serious about how we speak to children, how we interact with children. And even if they're not malicious, someone who doesn't take that seriously should not be working with kids, period. Often you don't know if someone is testing boundaries or crossing boundaries. You don't know what's really going on. And it doesn't do any good to jump to conclusions and just label someone immediately as a predator if they're crossing boundaries. But that must be taken seriously. We need to make, Gavin De DeBecker is, is, a, is a good expert on this area. He has a, a book called Protecting the Gift. And he says, look, we need to make careful, slow choices about the people we include in our children's lives and fast choices about the ones we exclude from working with kids. And this is true for parents uh, on an individual level. It's true for churches when they're thinking about their staff and volunteers.
0: What about cases of abuse when there is a power dynamic, say, a pastor and then a grown adult? Right.
1: So you get the cases where it comes to light and the, the it comes out and people are talking that the pastor had, quote unquote, an affair with an adult in the congregation. But with training... <laughs> We're hopefully able to see that is not an affair, but that's clergy abuse. And that's all abuse. That's what makes it a particularly egregious type of sin, is that it involves that dynamic of power and trust used to violate someone who is, in the moment of the abuse at least, rendered powerless or violated in some way. First of all, for us to not accept the, the labeling of the church community or the abuser even to think of it as an affair, but to see that when a pastor crosses any kind of sexual boundary with a congregant, even an adult, that is abusive. And pastors have to be held to a high level of accountability. Now, thankfully, some states are changing their laws and recognizing the spiritual and emotional power, the relational power that pastors hold over people And that makes it completely inappropriate for them to have any kind of sexual contact or interaction with them. So Texas, other states, about 12 or 13 now, have made it a crime for pastors to cross any kind of sexual boundary. And many states have laws in place for counselors and therapists and their counselees and clients. But a few states, many, several still, do not have any laws even for those situations, which, in my opinion, is tragic. So we need strong accountability. And those who violate their, use their power to violate others should never be in powers, positions of power or trust again in the church. Bottom line, I don't apologize for that stance. If someone is using their power to harm others, I think most people just don't understand how devastating that is. And if, even if you think they are humbled and repentant, Most are not, by the way. They continue to groom and test and minimize what they do and get people to accept that and convince them they're repentant, and they're not. Uh, That's a whole other subject as well.
0: I'm actually very relieved to hear you say that. So you think that someone who has abused their power from a, a clergy standpoint should never be in that position again? And, Period. Period. No discussion, in my opinion. And view. what is the reasoning behind that for someone who thinks that forgiveness and grace and we'll right. let them be restored and we'll create a restoration right. plan for them?
1: Okay. There's lots of issues there. First of all, we have a view often of forgiveness that connects that to restoration or putting them back in making it like it was but that's just not that's not uh the case we set accountability against forgiveness now why do we do that abusers do that and we have accepted that far too often even if you believe someone is repentant and is come into a place eventually of forgiveness from god or otherwise that in no way bears upon evaluating whether they are safe to be in a position of power and trust over, they've already demonstrated how they have wrought devastation in the lives of vulnerable people, and the the stakes are just too high. They are just too high. So this perspective comes from, I think, an understanding of, I would call it, and has been called, cheap grace and cheap forgiveness. But it also just fails to properly evaluate how offenders are, how to evaluate their repentance because they latch onto that. They use forgiveness so often as a way to manipulate others. And I talk to pastors often who are sitting with offenders who've been caught and the offender is continuing to test them and groom them to accept if they, will they accept that this was a mistake? If this was just a moment of A failure because of their stress at their work or alcohol or their marriage is not doing well. And that led them to do this. Those are all tactics that abusers use. They play the victim. They continue to try to deceive. And many pastors fall for this because they wrap it in spiritual language. They just say, this is really just God has shown me how much we're all just sinners. And I I really see that I'm. I am a, just a miserable sinner, just like everyone else, and I hope Jesus is really going to use this for incredible things in the future. Pastors suck that in, and they don't have any kind of way because they don't understand. They're not educated in abuser tactics. They don't know that when they're minimizing with this language or denying or using these excuses that are they're not, abusers are not original, typically. They're using the same types of... <laughs> minimizations, justifications, uh, reversing the victim and the offender. That's a good acronym for people to go look up. DARVO. Um, Dr. Jennifer Fried, she's at the Center for Institutional Courage. She, I think, pioneered that term. DARVO means deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. It's the same tactics over and over. Churches have to do much better at educating Everyone, leaders especially, have a deficit in this area so that they're not responding well. And Jesus talked about a community, I think, where where sinners are welcome. Amen. But show me the passage where Jesus said uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing, when they're continuing patterns of denial and playing the victim and excusing what they did, they are to be welcomed into the church, welcome in the wolves. Jesus never, ever said anything like that. In fact, he said the leaders have to stand up to those people. And Paul talks about avoiding people like that, who are preying upon the vulnerable, who are deceiving others. There's just a huge deficit of connecting the tremendous resources. So we earlier mentioned how the Bible can be twisted and used to justify oppression. There's a whole lot of material in the Bible. If you used rightly, in our view, can be used to counter and speaks against abuse and for justice. And that's the way it should be done. Many leaders that we know, and this I think is generally true in especially more conservative evangelical spaces, they don't have those categories very well. And they're often, if they do, they're not very bold in speaking up. They're concerned about how that might be perceived uh, by their congregants and some of the conversations right now that are being had in our country. But we have to overcome this. Uh, If we're going to make any kind of progress, we have to use the tremendous resources in the Christian faith that counter abuse, that speak against it, that even straight from the pages of the Bible, lay out common tactics. It's they're right there in so many of those stories and use those in the service of protecting others. Use it in the service of telling victims it's not your fault. And this is a common way of the world. People in positions of power and trust so often feel entitled to do what they want and take what they want. And God hates that. And as Christians, we're called to hate that too. There's just so much work to be done.
0: Can I Push you outside of your expertise for a minute. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm, I'm. This might not be outside of your expertise, but in a situation where the evidence is all spiritual abuse, Mm -hmm. and it's all spiritual, and there's no physical anything, right? I'm curious what you have to say about that. Just for me and what I'm working in, and.
1: Right, for how you help people and how you respond. And how navigate that in a church situation, yeah. How do you navigate? How do you respond? So sadly, we have victims of spiritual abuse come to us and they ask. And some of them have already been pushed out of their church. Some are wanting to stay and try to call for accountability. That's an individual choice often, and it's a hard choice for many. So I would say, first of all, we're often invited in into situations where the leaders are humble and ready to learn. But in systems of spiritual abuse, so often the leaders aren't, they're not going to allow anyone to bring outside accountability or education to shine any kind of light on it. So that's, it's kind of the catch-22 of so many spiritually abusive environments, right? Without leaders who hold the power typically, if they're either actively abusive spiritually or complicit in the system, they're just often not going to allow that to happen. So that sounds really discouraging, right? Absolutely. So I think we do what we can. We fight for clearer standards, better standards across the board for any church. And as more churches learn, there is hope that this is going to come more and more into the light, and those tactics are not going to be as tolerated by members in a church like that. There are cases, I've seen it, where without the leaders being willing to humble themselves, there's so many toxic cultures that need someone from the outside to come in and do like an independent assessment or investigation. But that's often not going to be allowed
0: by abusive leaders. So that's the hard point. That's the sticking point. If a leadership is toxic and they're hiring a consultant, they might not be the best people to hire a consultant. And some consultancies are pretty horrible. They're really bad. What are some good ways to know if the outside person is actually trustworthy? So
1: a few key things would be are they completely independent or is it the situation where a lot of times when a, a church hires a law firm, they're entered into a, a, basically a legal relationship that gives privilege to any information, right? So that can be, there's not full transparency and certain things are, can be kept under that umbrella of privilege within that relationship. So to have an arrangement where there's transparency in terms of what is what comes out and how the findings are brought forward, is that going to be released to the public, to the members? Uh, how is that going to be done? How is there going to be transparency? And then basic things would include also just do they have experience in these dynamics? Do they have actual training and experience in these areas? And do they really get the dynamics of spiritually abusive environments and emotionally abusive environments? You have to look at their competency, their independence, and then how transparency is handled. I think those are the main areas uh, that Mm -hmm. you would want to think about. And again, often leaders have a vested interest to have a, an investigation, if they're pressured into it for some reason, they would like to have something that they control the process. Yes, that's exactly the problem. Uh, so many individual abusers want to control the accountability that isn't placed upon them. That's the exact issue. Is you should hand over that to someone else who is respected, who has experience, who is going to be more objective, and you have to. Recognize that there's really no way forward apart from a deep humility. And leaders who are abusive, they need to not be in leadership. That's the bottom line. But so many are going to control a process that will, they can control, they can maintain power. That's just how it works. We've seen it over and over again, sadly. So there is a ton of work, and I'm convinced this is the most important area churches must work on if we're going to see any kind of better health in churches uh, in the U.S. So there's a ton of work to do.
0: There is. I'm going to have to process for three hours afterwards. (laughs) I'm so grateful that you guys exist, and I'm just honored to be able to share your organization with my listeners. And I could tell that you're very passionate about what you do. I'm so glad you're doing it. And I'm so glad that you were able to come on here and share here. I This is awesome.
1: Absolutely. Glad to. Thanks for all that you're doing. There's so much more to talk about. I'd love to come back sometime. Just if you're up for hey, that. Hey,
0: I would love to. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for part two. I want to remind you again to check out the resources in the show notes for further information. If you found these episodes on abuse in churches helpful, I invite you to share it with as many people as possible. The more awareness that is created around this subject, the closer we get to preventing abuse in faith-based communities. I'll see you next time.